Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray this morning that the powerful realities that are proclaimed in this great book would burst forth from the pages and grip our hearts. Lord, that Your Word would be powerfully displayed in the life of Your people here at Desert Springs. And not only here, Lord, but at all churches across this city, across this state, across this nation, and around this world that proclaim with great boldness and great faith the realities of Christ and Him crucified. Lord, would You strengthen us would you equip us? Would you use your word this morning, Lord, to drive home to us all that you have done in the person and work of Christ for your glory and the benefit of your people? Would you make it so even this day, Lord? In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Reading from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 all the way through verse 10. To me, Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Our sermon title this morning is long. I think it took up two whole places in in, in your bulletins, two whole lines. The church, the gallery of God's multicolored wisdom. What in the world does all that mean? It's a lot of words. What I want us to draw back from a little bit at this point is remember that Paul writes Ephesians as a general letter. And one of the ways we know this is the fact that he seems not to have any particular problem or situation in mind. He seems to be writing very generally to a large audience. He's not addressing like you foolish Galatians or you Corinthians, do you want me to come to you with a rod or other such colorful and and, and, uh, and very forceful statements that Paul's writing because he's speaking to a particular people who he knows well and and is addressing particular issues. Here, he's drawn back. And I want us to once again come back to that big picture and see and remind ourselves of what Paul's up to in the book of Ephesians. The big theme, and I even have a friend of mine, actually a couple of friends, who have actually entitled their whole series to Ephesians, The Church. And then they give you every week, The Church, this. The church, this. The church, this. Somewhat the way I've done it this morning. But what I want us to begin to see is, is that God has had a purpose. And we've talked about that repeatedly throughout the book of Ephesians. God has had an eternal purpose that He has been working out. And what we come to at this particular juncture in Ephesians is Paul now starts to say, I've tried to show you how specifically this affects all of you, I'm now going to start to draw you out to see how really big it is what I'm doing in the world with you. And so I want us to begin to look this morning and to consider the fact that God has displayed, especially back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, His power, 
He's displayed it. He said, look, look at my power. I can save wicked, helpless, hopeless people. I can resurrect my son from the dead. I can carry out and orchestrate all the events of history so that what I want to see happen, happens. So we've seen his power on display. We've also seen his grace on display. You see how big his grace is. You see the reality that he says, your sin is not big enough to keep me from you. So you think about that for a minute. God has basically said to us, your sin is not big enough, it's not bad enough, it's not, it's not powerful enough to keep me from you. So he's demonstrated this power. He's demonstrated the surpassing riches of his grace. And now Paul wants us to begin to get hold of the fact that another aspect of God's character is in play here. It's his wisdom. And what he wants us to begin to see is how God's work in the church is being displayed by the church to the world. And what I want to begin to see here is, is that Paul, back in, if you remember back in verse 10 of chapter 2, says, For we are his workmanship. One translation says, For we are his work of art. We are this great portrait. We are, collectively, are this great work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we begin to see then is, is that the church is this context, it's this place of display. That God, the church is not just the creation of some men who wanted to be able to say, we've got power and now let's create a bunch of rules and regulations to keep everybody down and to maintain order. The church wasn't a human being's idea at all. The church was God's idea. In fact, every time the session meets together and we sometimes struggle and wrestle with one another, we are reminded that if we were in charge, if we could do it our way, it'd look different. And as you look around this room, what you need to become overwhelmingly connected to is the fact that many of you sit here and think, you know what? If I had my way, the people in this church would look very different. They'd be probably a different group of people. For starters, most of it would say, for those of us who have unbelieving relatives, at least my relatives would be a part of the church. For those of us like my family and I who live 1,700 miles away, we just like our believing, some of our believing family to be a part of this church. But see, if we really started to sit down and think about it, understand this, God is at work building and developing His church throughout the universe. He's developing it. And it really makes us understand, and the reason why I keep using these universal terms is because Paul is using these universal terms. It may all be taking place on planet Earth, but somehow planet Earth, maybe this obscure little speck in the midst of this vast universe, but somehow Paul has the audacity to suggest that cosmic realities are being affected by that little speck of dust that we call home. That's what he's telling us. And he's saying the outcome of your life, your faith, your obedience is actually having cosmic effect. That's pretty incredible when you begin to think about it. 
So we see then that God has called us to a bigger role than merely just to think about ourselves. We're going to look at this a little more next week, but I'll at least put this little tantalizing thought in your idea. We go to birthday parties a lot. Our kids are at that age where you're birthday partying yourself and you're at other people's birthday parties. And all of us know this from having gone to birthday parties, that when you get there with little kids and they start seeing Susie or Johnny or whoever getting all the gifts, what do they say? I want some gifts. And what is it you often sit down? You have to sit down and say, but Lydia Mae, this is not your party. This isn't about you today. But guess what? You were invited. You get cake and ice cream. If they're really good party people, like Jackie Satterfield, you get incredible party favors. <laughs> There are a lot of great things that you get, but it's not your party. And see, that's really what we need to start to understand as we think about our life as Christians. Christianity is not our party. It's not called Dennis Anity or Bruce Anity. It's called Christ Christianity. It's Jesus' party. And we have the privilege of being a part of it. We get all the benefits. Get to eat cake and ice cream. And all those type of things. But it's not our party. Therefore, we should be focusing on someone outside of ourselves, which draws us and compels us to think about others. And too often, Christianity is seen as something that's basically about me and about getting me healthy and me whole and all these things about me, not about me. Those things may happen, but it's not about that happening. It's about seeing the greatness of Christ in His church. So let's see how Paul's unpacking that for us in these verses. The first point I want us to look at is the salvation of the peoples. We looked at some of these verses last week at a little different slant. This week we're going to, going to look at it from God's wisdom. Look at what he says in verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So what we see here is Paul says, I want you to look at this and see that I come preaching the gospel for the salvation of Gentiles. Now I want you to think about what that means. The unsearchable riches of Christ address two main issues that Gentiles had. We were told about them in chapter 2. They're alienated from God, and they're alienated from the people of God, which means they're alienated from all the blessings, the benefits, you name it. Those two main categories, alienated from God and alienated from God's people. And the unsearchable riches of Christ, Paul tells us, draws them in, deals with those, addresses those two issues. They now, who once were not the people of God, have been made my people. You once were without me, but now you are children of the living God. Paul is saying to them, you have become something brand new. You have become a people who were scattered, the Gentiles, all over the place, from every tribe, nation, and tongue. You now have become one people 
in Christ. And so there's a transformation taking place, and Paul is emphasizing this, saying, look at how salvation in its full complexity is being lived out. He's drawing us to see that broad reality. And in some ways we have to see this. We see the same confounding reality of God's wisdom that is displayed in the incarnation and the crucifixion. I want you to think about this. Isn't it a whole lot easier, folks, when you get together with other people that think just like you and act just like you and do all the things you like, like all the same music, like all the same food, like all the same games, you know, and play Monopoly right, you know, where you put a bunch of money in the free park, you know, so when you land on free parking, you get it, even though the rules explicitly state you're not supposed to do that. I mean, those kind of people, you know, that kind of folk. The people who want to keep the box out while you're putting the puzzles together by the fire during Christmas, not those people that, you know, don't want to look at the box because they really want to challenge. I don't want to be challenged. I want to just, there it is, let's see how we get it together. And then, of course, we keep a lot of those pieces together around that time. So next year when we get it out, we've got half the work done. Those kind of people, those kind of people, that's what I'm talking about. See, if we really think about the wisdom of God, it makes no sense that He starts drawing all these people from all these backgrounds, all these cultural ways of doing things, all this diversity. I mean, God, you've got this happy little people called the Jews. Just do something great with them. And just leave all these pagans to themselves. See, what Paul is saying, as the apostle to the Gentiles, what seems foolish to human beings displays the wisdom of God. Just like God taking on human flesh and being born in a stable, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger surrounded by insignificance and poverty. Doesn't look all that wise a plan. Vulnerable. And then we look at the cross. How wise is that? Jesus, nailed to a cross, bleeding, separated from the Heavenly Father. Do you see how in the eyes of the world, what Foolishness. The cross is foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews. God's foolishness is actually His great wisdom. What seems foolish in the salvation of all peoples, drawing them together with all their cultural differences, with all their diversity, with all their hurts and pains, with all their warts and blemishes. He pulls them together and says, My people, interconnected, woven together. It doesn't make sense in some ways. I mean, let me tell you how in some ways it doesn't make sense. Think about this church. We have people in this church that speak Spanish. We have people in this church whose mother tongue is Korean. We have people in this church whose mother tongue is French. It wasn't that long ago that my family moved over here from Germany. Only three generations. My grandfather spoke fluent German. My my great-grandfather preached in German to a Lutheran congregation in the United States. I want you to think about that. Think about all the 
difficulties in some ways that creates. There's this language. We're trying to communicate things to one another. It'd just be so much easier if we just had everybody on the same page right from the get-go. Do you see how God is gracious? Do you see how he says, look, I will show you and I will demonstrate in your midst that no matter what language people speak, no matter what cultural diversity is brought to the table, I am able to draw it together and to create something beautiful. I am able to bring it together and manifest my wisdom in your midst. And it's a beautiful reality, even though sometimes it proves to be difficult for us or it might create concerns. So we see that the apparently foolish things have actually been the great display of God's wisdom. The second thing I want us to see then is the creation of the church. Look at verse 9. And he says, and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What's Paul getting at? Well, if we go on to verse 10 just a little bit, he says, so that through the church, see what Paul's saying is the hidden mystery that God created is the church. This frustrating reality that we're all called into. And I say frustrating because men and women... Like I said, I wanted you to begin to see church is not always easy. It's not always a fun place. It's not always the place we come to and go, wow, can't think of any place better. Sometimes church is a place that we have to struggle. We have to see God and we have to say to ourselves, God, if I'm to stay here, if I'm to struggle, if I'm to do the things you've called me to do, your greatness will have to be displayed in me for it to take place. Because in me, I'm not going to see it happen. I know me. I know my frailties. I know my weaknesses. I know my dispositions. And see, we come to a place where we say, as I decrease, guess what? He increases. In my weakness, He showed strong. But many of us are stubborn people and we don't want to see that we're weak. In fact, the main way we use Christianity is to get God to bring us to a place of equilibrium, homostasis. I'm in good shape. Everything's really okay. Oh, yeah, there's some, there's some rough edges here and there, but most things are going well. And God wants to draw us to a place where when we say most things are going well, we never lose sight of the reason why they are going well. In some ways, it's the same idea as what Moses warned the children of Israel. When you go into the land, don't think that you hewned out those cisterns. Don't think that you planted all those groves. Don't walk into these places and think, look at our great reality. There's nothing wrong with having great groves. There's nothing wrong with having deep wells with cool drinks. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But if you forget that that is the work of a gracious God who is working for His glory and His plans and His desires, then you basically have undermined the whole point because you've once again thought, it's my party. It's not your party. It's God's. It's for Him. It's for His glory. It's for His benefit. And so we see then the hidden mystery of God addresses the more confounding realities of uniting Jews and Gentiles into one new society. I mean, it would have been great if God would have come up with this kind of plan. Okay, 
there's this group called the church, and that's all the Gentiles. And then there's the Jews, and we keep those two groups separated. Jews have their little strand of reality, and Gentiles have theirs. Gentiles get saved, and they stay on their side of the aisle, and Jews get saved, and they stay on their side of the aisle. That's not what Paul teaches. Paul says, God is doing something profound. He's creating out of these two distinct groups, one new people, the church. The church is the big crescendo of life. It's the big reality. Christ died to save a people known as the church. Jews and Gentiles collectively into one new people. That's what Paul says is the hidden mystery. That's the reality. The mystery is certainly the mystery of Christ. It certainly centers on Christ. But Paul here is trying to bring us to a place where we focus not on that, not on Christ himself and his work, but on the church as the new society, the new nation, the new humanity united in Christ. We need to see that the union of all these people seems impossible and, like I've said before, seems in many ways unwise. It's a lot easier to have a Swedish church and a Norwegian church and a German church and an Afrikaans church. and It's a lot easier to do it that way. Homogeneity makes things a lot easier. The reality is, is that God is calling people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And as I've said to some of my friends who are of a little more, um, how do I want to say this? They don't like mixing with people. They ain't like them. I've reminded them that if they're really Christians, they better get used to that because when they get to heaven, there's going to be a whole lot of people not like them. And see, the reality is the church is heaven breaking in on earth. It's breaking in here. All around us. When you look around this room, you need to go look at heaven breaking out all over the place. Here it is. Now, it's only a taste of heaven, so don't get despairing. Because when you look around, you think, man, if this is heaven, we're in big trouble. But see, what I want you to see is as though that you taste those glimmers. See, when you have that great conversation, when you, when you watch and hear God's testimony in different people's lives, you begin to see something bigger, greater, grander is going on in this place than my average, ordinary, mundane life. In fact, my average, ordinary, mundane life isn't all that average, ordinary, and mundane. There's some pretty amazing things going on in changing diapers, getting up every morning at the same time to go run that same two miles, to then get dressed and go to work, or whatever your habits and routines are. See, even for me, sometimes caramel macchiatos just don't have that pizzazz. I have to try something different on the menu. But see, God is glorious in the midst of it. God is showing His wisdom in all of it. We need to see that union of all these people draws us to focus on the Creator. Because the same one who brought the original creation, look at how Paul talks about there in verse 9, and to bring the light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why focus on the Creator? Here's why. Because the one who created the original creation is the Creator of the new creation. The one who created the original man is also the creator of the new man. 
the reality is, is that what we see taking place around us is God the Creator is making something new right here in this church. He is making all things new. And either we believe that and it's true, or He's a liar. And since I don't believe God lies, it's contrary to His character, then it must be true. And that means as we look around this room, we have to see the realities that God is making a new creation in this midst. That He is redeeming people out of the bondage of sin and drawing them together and fitting them to be together as the people of God. The last point, and it's my most lengthy, in seminary they they taught us to do other things, so you'll just have to forgive my professors, but it's the most lengthy point. But here's the final point, is the reality of the multicolored wisdom of God. God's wisdom, I want you to think about this, is the character of God displayed in His reaching all His goals in ways which are both excellent and consistent with His whole character and counsel and is displayed in everything he does. For those of you that ever tried to figure out Proverbs 8, that's what Proverbs 8 is all about. Here is the reality of God's wisdom personified. Everything he does, he does wisely. It achieves all his purposes. Here Paul declares that the focus of God's wisdom is displayed in the church. Look at what he says again in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold of the multicolored wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul uses a Greek word and translates it. It could be translated varied, manifold, multifaceted. I just like the one multicolored because of what it actually means. It is an idea of thinking about a... a, a bed of flowers that are all multicolored. Or a crown which has all these different jewels in it. Or a woven rug. Or an embroidered cloth. Any way you look at it, it's this great tapestry. It's this varied, multicolored reality. And as it's brought together, it creates something more beautiful than it could have had left to itself. I've seen some beautiful thread in my day. My mom brought back some incredible silk cloth when she was over in Thailand for a while. I've seen beautiful things, but once all that stuff gets woven together, it's incredible as the pattern begins to take place. In fact, all that thread comes together and creates something vastly more beautiful than left to itself. It could have ever created. And so what God is saying to us is as He saves us, He doesn't save us just to sit there and go, see this beautiful thread of Dennis? So Dennis's real place is as it's woven into all these other threads. And we begin to see this beautiful tapestry being woven out. The church. God's display of His grace and power and wisdom. Paul tells us, that God now in the church is revealing it by addressing the need of human beings, namely redemption, restoration, reformation, full salvation by creating a people, a church who globally and locally bring the reality of the gospel to bear in their worship to God, in their actions towards one another, and their actions towards a watching world. Now that's pretty big. Think about how big that is. Here's what he's done. He's basically saved people so that we globally as a collective group and locally as individual 
churches are spreading the gospel by our worship, by our actions towards one another, and by our actions as we walk out of this place. And if you begin to get hold of that, you'll understand 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. That's why Paul's going to say, so live like this. Because what he's saying is, you're on display. You're on display. Live life to the fullest on display. Be beautiful. Be glorious. Be what you were called to be. Don't live in the squalor and the filth. Live in what you were called to. The church is the great artwork of God displayed in history and in localities close to each one of us. John Stott sees it this way, and listen to what he says. John Stott says, See, he sees in the idea of drama unfolding and says, The gospel spreads throughout the world, this new and variegated Christian community. It is as if a great drama is being enacted. As the church unfolds, it's this great drama is being enacted. History is the theater. The world is the stage. And church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. Now, men and women, I want you to think about this. When you have conflict and strife, if you can begin to see that conflict and strife is in this scene, which is a part of this act, which is a part of this play, which you've been called to be a part of, God's big drama of salvation unfolding, I guarantee you it will help us at times not to get so caught up in the midst of that moment. I'm not saying it's always going to happen that way. I'm saying that if there's any hope to get out of our funk, out of our hurts and pains, it is seeing the reality that all these things that are happening around us, good, bad, and otherwise, are actually acts and scenes of God working out the sanctification of His people so that they are on display for whom? Well, Paul tells us something profound to the angelic host. That we are basically a witnessing community, not just to the nations, not just towards God, but also to even the fallen angels who inhabit the heavenlies. This angelic host, we are told, both those who follow God and those who don't, have not been shown until the church came into existence what God was up to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says this, It was revealed to them, that is the earlier prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Ghost sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. They long to look into it. And look at what Paul says here. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We're actually part of God's plan to display His greatness throughout the universe. The cosmos. Now that's no small task. I want you to think about that. There may be a hundred people here this morning. 
We're not a huge number. But what I want you to see how this practically works out is, is that God says, I've called out this group of people sitting at 1555 West Overton Road, just a short throw off the corner of La Cañada and Overton slash Hardy. I've pulled you out and said, you are on display so that the angels might glory and shudder. That's the effect that's going on in this room. Now, how big is that? How significant is that? See, how can any of you say, I, I'm not all that big a deal? Well, apparently you are. Apparently you are significant. You are needful. You are necessary. All of us. God basically puts us on display as His gallery. And I want us now to conclude with this. God has done all this so that we might display His love back towards Him and towards others. That's our focus. All the way through the epistles, what do we constantly hear? It's not about me. I'm here to serve you. Why is Paul serving us? Why are the Gentile? I mean, why is Peter serving us? Why did the prophets of the Old Testament, why does Peter say they were not serving themselves, they were serving you? Because the whole focus of God is to get us focused on Him and others. What are the two great commandments? Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the focus. God gave the message to Paul. Paul proclaimed the gospel message concerning Jesus Christ of the Gentile nations. By visual display of the church, Christ united them to Himself. He sends forth His glory into the heavenly places. You see, it comes from God and goes back out into the heavenlies. We are on display to men and women in need of gospel grace. We are. How you think, how you live, how you operate matters. We're on display. God is using us to draw people to Himself. We are on display to the cosmic rulers and authorities. As we live out, we are on display. The angels are overwhelmed and amazed at what God is doing because it confounds them. And ultimately, what does that do? It brings glory to God. So we are on display ultimately so that God would be seen as great and glorious and the awesome God that He is. Ponder this. Let it soak in. We're not insignificant. We've been called to a great calling. If we are not a part, if you are not a part this morning, if anything that's been said this morning you think, I'm not a part of that, but I want to be, please come speak to me after the service is over. I would love to talk to you about how you can know you're a part of the church, how you can be a part of the church, to be on display. And for those of us that are part of this, may this help us to get beyond the normative attitude that we often have towards our everyday lives and rather see our everyday lives as great opportunities to display the multicolored wisdom of God. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.